This is the weekly podcast from Spotswood at Ladysmith in Caroline County, Virginia, USA. Our teacher today is Church Elder Matt Johnson. I know, uh, I know he didn't want me to do this, but I just want to, you know, just say, Aaron, thank you for leading us, man. Uh, more, more importantly, uh, thanks for setting an example for us as believers what it looks like to trust God's hands in your life, man. And um, during this time, and God's doing a work in you, man. And I'm excited to walk with you, brother. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, excited to see what God's going to do. Um, also, just, you know, I want to recognize those of you guys that stepped up in countless ways while Aaron kind of stepped back to fill roles, lead us in worship, help lead our, our student ministry. We are, we are so appreciative of you. In fact, there's probably a number of people in this room that we could recognize in the way that you guys self, selflessly serve, the way that you guys go without any kind of recognition week in and week out, but what God does through you, even in uh, the ways that you serve and things that aren't always seen or are evident. And I mean, as a whole, we, don't we love to be recognized? We, uh, like, I love to be recognized. I, if I do something and I feel like it's worthy of note, like I want, I want someone to like, see that they recognize my effort, whether it's at, in my home or it's at my job. You know, my sinful heart sometimes just really craves that recognition that what I did made a difference, right? The, and, but, but what if it never comes? What if the recognition that sometimes our sinful heart looks for never comes? What if we, uh, would we still uh, make the effort? Would it still be worth it to us if we weren't going to be recognized for what happens? See, the, the church is no different. Sometimes we think it's only those who are recognized are the ones that are making a difference. And sometimes we only think we can make a difference if we are recognized for what we do. In fact, God works in a very different way. God uses ordinary, regular people in ways that aren't seen to make the biggest impact for the kingdom. He sees them as vital for the mission of God. See, the big idea I have for you today, the thing I hope to see highlighted as we look in the text is that God sends everyday people of God, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, to execute the mission of God. Let me say that one more time. God sends everyday people of God, equipped with the word of God, and empowered by the spirit of God to execute the mission of God. See, you all have seen a spear, right? A spear with a broken tip is, is a pretty useless spear, would you say? And it's not, the, it's not the pastors, it's not the people that are recognized that are at the tip of that spear. It's the everyday people of God that are scattered wherever they go. See, today we're, we're going to continue our study through Acts. We're going to continue to look and see the unfolding of this unstoppable mission of God that we've seen start in Jerusalem with Pentecost and spread to Judea, Samaria. And now, you know, last week we saw Rick talk to us about how the gospel had spread to the Gentile community. And like Peter, like takes the gospel that the, God shows him that the gospel is not just for Jews, but for all people everywhere in every corner of the world. And we're going to look and see. And if you're in Christ, my hope for you today is that you would, you would see yourself get caught up in the unstoppable mission of God. And if, if you're not a believer, this is a great day to be with us. We're happy you're here because we're actually going to see today where the believers were first called Christians, why they were called Christians. So I hope that you would bear with us as we sit under the scriptures together. We're going to be in Acts 11 uh, verse 19, that's where we're going to start. We're going to 
We're going to read through the end of Acts 11, and then later we're going to, uh, we're going to jump ahead to Acts 13. So if you, if you have your U version, just know that you're going to click a couple to the right, and, and we're going to flip the page here uh, as we go. But uh, just right now, we're going to read, um, we're going to look through Acts 11. But, uh, but we've seen so far in Acts that um, persecution has plagued the church. And now we're going to see that the church has spread to the mighty city of Antioch. And before we read, it's important to know a few things about the city of Antioch. I don't want to bore you with facts, but it's just a, a couple of things that are important to remember. See, Antioch was actually the third largest city in Rome at the time. Uh, there was Rome, there was Alexandria, and then there was Antioch. They estimated about 500,000 people, half a million people, it was 300 miles north of where Jerusalem was in what's now modern-day Turkey. It was filled with a variety of nations and religions and ethnicities. It was like a melting pot, like, like most big cities were. And it, it was said to have as many gods in that city as there were people. It was known as the abode of the gods. It was also a morally bankrupt city. There was temples with cult prostitutions and other Roman cities and officials. When they saw moral decay approach their city, they would say, the foul waters of Antioch have reached our city. But what a great place for the church. What a great place for believers to shine bright in the darkest of places. See, and it turns out this church, the church that was started at Antioch, would be the launch point for much of world missions. They would turn the worlds upside down. Jerusalem was great. We loved Jerusalem, but they struggled with sharing the gospel with Gentiles. They just couldn't get over that hurdle. What does it look like to share our faith with people that aren't like us? But Antioch turned the world upside down, and we don't even know their names who started that church. They, they were just everyday people equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, executing the mission of God. And as we read through the text, I want to hopefully highlight five exhortations that I think the church of Antioch would give us as we strive to live our lives on mission. So let's, let's read. Let's start in Acts 11, verse 19 together. We'll read to 30, and then we'll kind of dig through some things. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of, Cornel or of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray real quick. God, you, God, I pray that 
God, you would show yourself uh, this morning, God, that it would not be um, my words, but God, that you would speak to our hearts, God, that you would pierce, uh, God, to the soul and God, even to the joint, the bone and marrow, God, that you would divide our hearts, God, that you would convict us and that we, as we sit under your word, God, that, um, God, we'd, we kind of come to you as, as, uh, as just blind beggars trying to tell other blind beggars where to find food, God. Our, our sin is deep. Uh, God, your mercy is, uh, is deeper. God, uh, you pour out your love for us. God, you suffer for us. God, I pray, Lord, as we look at the church at Antioch this morning, God, that we might, uh, we might see your, your desire for us, for our church here at Ladysmith. God, it's your name we pray. Amen. So the, the first exhortation I have for you guys is this. It's that let's, let's trust God's sovereignty in our circumstances and our suffering. See, in verse 19, you see, it takes us back, if you're looking at it, it takes us back to chapter 8, verse 1. And if you look, we're gonna, I'll throw it up here on the screen, we're going to look at chapter 8, verse 1, but you'll notice something interesting. The persecution that was surrounding Stephen was forcing the believers out of Jerusalem. But it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. See, it wasn't the apostles, the, the big names that were recognized, that were scattered and spread, and the people that were going uh, as far as Antioch. It was the regular everyday people that would end up planning the church of Antioch. We never know their names, but we see them spread because of persecution. God sends them even as far as Jerusalem. And they would end up being the ones that would send up some of the most dynamic missionary teams that the world has ever seen. See, we can trust God's sovereignty in our circumstances because that's how he intends to use us in our circumstances. Our circumstances are not our own. If God has you somewhere, he has you there for a purpose. He has us, you know, that job change that you weren't expecting, that relocation that caught you by surprise, or that season of life where you feel like you're just juggling a, a handful of kids and you don't know, like, why this season seems so hard. God has you in that season for a reason. If you are somewhere, God has you there for a reason. You don't have to be an apostle to take the neighbor's brownies. You don't have to be a pastor to invite someone and have a meal with them and just in hopes to share the gospel with them or have a gospel conversation. See, we can, we can also trust God's sovereignty in our suffering because, see, suffering and persecution, they're platforms to proclaim the gospel. You shouldn't be surprised when you suffer for Christ's sake. See, Pete, Paul, he talks about, he says, when we suffer, we, we share in his likeness in his death. It's like we model Christ in his life, but he's also calling us to mimic him in his death as we suffer. It's like we're supposed to. And Peter even goes farther in 1 Peter 4. He says, we should rejoice when we suffer and we share in his sufferings. What a backwards idea. God actually wants us to suffer. Rejoice for it. And he wants to use it for his sake. Like, why, why, would, why would he want that? Why would he want us to do that? A better question might be, why did Christ suffer and die? Why did he come? Why did he lay his life down? Isaiah calls him the suffering servant, right? Christ came on a mission to suffer and die so that he could accomplish our salvation. 
We suffer and die to ourselves because we proclaim that same salvation. We proclaim where our hope is in, not in our circumstances, not in how well things are going, but how strong and how good God is even when suffering and persecution come. See, God's pattern is to use all types of suffering, all things that Satan would use to deter, to destroy, to distract, a better question may be to ask, why did Christ suffer? Or, excuse me. God could use any situation, no matter how messy, no matter how difficult, for his glory and fame. He wants to use it uh, for his glory. The second exhortation I would have for you guys this morning, for us, is that let's embrace intentional evangelism. Let's embrace intentional evangelism. See, the scattered disciples... In verse 19, they were spreading the, the gospel to no one except the Jews. But then in verse 20, some of these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they decided to break the mold, right? They spoke to those who were Gentiles, to Hellenists. Now, Hellenists in chapter 6 was used to describe Greek-speaking Jews. But really here we see the context points us that these aren't Greek-speaking Jews. These are people who are not Jews, people who are very different from them. They were the, these were the pagans of Antioch. These men weren't afraid of ethnic barriers. They weren't afraid of people that didn't look like them. They weren't afraid to engage the culture that they were in. They embraced it and shined in it. They didn't shy away from it. And they contextualized the gospel. You'll notice that they say they use the Lord Jesus. See, the pagans in Antioch, they would have no real concept of the Jewishness of Jesus. This messianic title, Jesus the Christ, as the Jews would talk about, this promised Messiah that would come, the Christ. They used Jesus as Lord. They had a category for someone being called Lord or Kyrios, the idea of being Lord over all. We saw that last week in chapter 10 when we looked at Peter sharing the gospel to Cornelius. It says, he was Lord, he was Lord of all. They understand that, that, hey, there's someone that is in charge of all the stuff that's going on. And that, that Lord is Jesus. Notice, too, that it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. See, God was the one that brought the results of all of their efforts. It wasn't them. He gave them favor in the community, and he brought the fruit of their evangelism. See, they, they, they could have focused on their strategies, how they were preaching the gospel, how they were preaching the Lord Jesus. We don't see a whole lot of how or their strategies, and sometimes we can get caught up in strategies, but it was intentional. It was cross-cultural. They, they literally stepped out of what was comfortable for them and went to others. See, and we were in our community group last week, and our, we were talking about Peter and how he went to, you know, he had Gentiles in his house, and he went and ate in the house of Cornelius, and thinking about how uncomfortable it would have been for Peter, right? Everything about his Jewishness would have said, this is, like, you shouldn't do this. Like, you should never eat in the home of someone who eats that kind of food or talks that way or comes from that background. You should just stick to people that are like you. To eat with them, to share, to break bread. But see, being obedient to God and embracing intentional evangelism eventually leads us to embrace the uncomfortable. To be okay with being uncomfortable for the sake that God might use it to advance his kingdom. See, God will put people in our path that are, that are not like us, and are we going to shy away, or are we going to embrace them and engage them with the gospel in hopes that God might use it? 
See, all we have to do is be obedient and trust God for the results. We can't, there's not a track, there's not a script that you can memorize that's going to guarantee that someone's going to come to Christ every time you share it. But let me tell you, when the everyday people of God are saturated, their minds are saturated with the gospel, they're the most dangerous weapon for the kingdom that exists. It's penetrating every little crevice in our culture. And tied right to the hip of evangelism is, is the next thing, is, is discipleship. See, let's, let's discover God's design in discipleship through accountability, encouragement, and teaching. See, I want to I I kind of sit here for a little bit because discipleship is a big heart of what we have, what we desire here at Ladysmith. See, in verse 22, it starts out, the Jerusalem church hears about what is going on, and you know what? They send Barnabas to check in on them, much like they did in chapter 8 when they sent um, Peter and John to go check on what's happening in Samaria, right? And some of us, you know, this idea of accountability that we kind of, we question it because, you know, we question the motives of people that would come in, check in on us and how we're doing. But here we see that accountability is an important part of healthy growth in the church. See, it's clear though, the motives for Barnabas weren't out of like, like criticism and tearing down, but to out of love and trust that God's going to do a work and wanting to steer people towards, towards Christ and what his mission is. See, we all need accountability like a young tree needs those, those stakes right beside it, keeping it growing straight. Men need other men in their life to ask them, hey, how, how is it going as you lead your family in the Lord? Like, how is that going? Women need women to say, hey, are you filling your mind up with God's word and more than you are just social media or whatever is the flavor of the day? Are you pouring that into your heart and mind? As elders even, we, we have these hard conversations where we're trying to hold each other accountable, not just in our character and our behavior, but God, like, God, where are you leading and directing us? Are we being listening to the direction of the Spirit? Are we walking in step with the gospel that we preach? See, accountability out of trust and love, tied to encouragement, what we're going to talk about here in a second, is what we need for healthy growth. When Barnabas gets on the scene in verse 23, he sees the grace of God and he was glad. See, he sees all that's going on and he continued to exhort them to remain in their steadfast in their purpose. Hey, keep on doing what you're doing. And he's the perfect guy for the job, right? He's, he's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. His name literally means son of encouragement, right? And their steadfast purpose obviously was evangelistic because... God continues to save and rescue these pagans out of Antioch. Let me ask you this. How often do we see encouragement as a part of discipleship? When was the last time you said an encouraging word to another believer, just affirming what God's using them in, how God's using them? How, like, how powerful would it be if we were all like speaking words of encouragement to each other, reminding and helping each other stay steadfast and purpose what God was calling us to? See, I'd, I challenge you today after this, leave, find someone, find another believer, remind them like what God is doing in their life, how God is using them. Remind them, encourage them to stay steadfast and purpose. Maybe it's in your community group. Maybe it's in your home. Wives, if you have no idea how powerful your encouragement is to your husband. 
No man is perfect, but be an expert in their strengths, not just their weaknesses. It's easy to call out weaknesses. Point out to him when he does well and how he leads spiritually in the home and as he follows after Jesus. Men, you likewise, when you see your wife, after all the things that she's got on her plate to do and she's trying to carve out time to spend time with the Lord, affirm her in it. Let the things drop. Affirm the time she's spending with the Lord. Build her up. As the church in Antioch continues to grow, Barnabas realizes he can't do it on his own. He's humble enough to know, hey, things are going well. Like, I, I can't handle this all on my own. And he, probably, he goes and gets the most dynamic Christian teacher that probably ever existed, right? He goes, he's like, hey, it's nice I got my buddy Paul here. So I'll just go grab him. He'll, he'll knock this thing out of the park. But more than just that, he realizes the importance of solid teaching for growth in the church, for discipleship. I mean, hopefully you'll see that I don't think that teaching is the only thing important to discipleship, but it is essential to discipleship. I mean, the Great Commission says, you guys fill in the gap, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. See, growing as a disciple will always involve being taught. Taught God's word, taught the commands of Jesus, taught how to see how this whole book points to him and how to see things through the world, through a biblical worldview. That's growing and being taught those things as a part of growing as a disciple. And that's why here we seek to preach the Bible. You don't need man's wisdom here. You don't need to just hear what's coming out of our mouth. You need to hear what God says about his word and about who he is. And see, Psalm 19 talks about how valuable the Word of God is. It says it's, it's, more, uh, it's more delicious than, than the drippings of the honeycomb. It's more valuable than fine gold. Even, um, and we, it points to where we can find life in Christ. It points to who God is. But let me challenge you. If you're sitting here thinking, like, I, I can't disciple someone. Maybe you think, like, I don't know enough to disciple someone else. Let me, let me, let me break it to you. None of us know enough. Amen. Okay. We're all, we're all sitting under the word together. We're all trying to grow together. That's why we use the word to disciple one another. Read it together. Just study it with someone. Invite them to study it with you. You don't have to know all the answers. Just dig together. Find the answers. See, you'll be surprised. You'll be teaching more than you know. People will be like seeing you live out your faith in front of them. People will be just glad that you're spending time with them. And you might be surprised the people that would love to be discipled by you. People that would love to just have you open their life. The big question is, are you willing to invite other people into your life? Make room for them in your life. Others of you may be in here and you'll be like, I just, I'm desiring that. I want to be discipled. I challenge you, go ask that person that you respect. Ask them if they might have some space in their life. They might say no. Remember Jesus he was God, and he only had room for 12 uh, through his whole life. So don't be discouraged. Be patient. Be creative. Find creative ways that you can pursue a posture of being discipled, even if you don't have that mentor-style relationship that everyone kind of characterizes. In my life, there hasn't always been seasons where I have someone that I can meet with that can mentor me and pour to me. But you know what? I've met a lot of dead guys and learned from them through books. And I've, you know, there's different things <laughs> Yeah. No, I don't see dead people like, I do not, I'm not Bruce Willis, I don't see dead <laughs> but, um, but 
You know what the fruit of discipleship is when, when you have accountability, encouragement, and teaching going on amongst the people of God? You see the fruit of what happens, right? In verse 26, at the end it says, after they were teaching and all these great many people were coming to the Lord, it was in Antioch that these disciples were first called Christians. See, it wasn't this self-identified label. It was the culture around them being like, hey, we, like, you're not Jews. You're not pagans. You know, you've got all these different ethnicities, diversities. Like, you're just you're kind of unique. We've got to call you something different. We don't really have a category for you people. And that's the thing is that when people like, that are transformed by the gospel... It's undeniable to those that are around them. And, and that's the hope of the gospel too, right? The gospel, I was just talking to Mike about this. The gospel is not just about like, hey, it saves me from my sin for eternity and then it slaps me with a whole lot of things to do. A whole lot of lists of things I got to obey and make sure I'm keeping and checking my box. But the gospel literally transforms you. It makes you a new person. Amen. It changes your identity. God literally gives you his spirit and makes you a new person. The old passes away. The new is come. See, transformed people live transformed lives, and it's undeniable. See, this is, like, this is what I pray for, for our church, that we would be a church that literally lives in such a countercultural way that it's undeniable that what's happening here is because of God. After discipleship, the next exhortation I have for you is that let's, let's advance the gospel through compassionate collaboration. Let's advance the gospel through compassionate collaboration. See, these transformed people, right, in verses 27 through 30, they have a, they have a good thing going, okay? The gospel is like, it's growing. The church is booming. There's, there's butts in the seats. Nickels are dropping in the bucket. Things are just, they're slamming, right? And then there's this guy Prophet, teacher, Agabus, Agabhu, he foretells a famine coming, right? And it's, he knows it's going to hit the whole, whole Roman area, but it's probably going to hit Judea a little harder than it's going to hit this thriving city of Antioch. So what do the disciples in Antioch do? They hoard the resources and just invest in their thriving city and they build up the church there, right? Oh, they're moved with compassion. They see other believers that are being hit a little bit harder by the famine. They got all these resources in their nice, big, third largest city in the Roman Empire, and they're, they're sitting nice, and they say, hey, what can we do to benefit our brothers in Judea? See, they see the advancement of the gospel as bigger than what's just going on in Antioch. Sure, things are going well, but it's bigger than what's just happening in Antioch. See, the kingdom of God is bigger than what's happening in here in Ladysmith. Bigger Things of God are bigger than what's happening in this state, in our region, in America. We are very fortunate to have resources. And while God's blessed us, our church wants to look for ways. That, how can we partner with other ways, other ministries, other mission endeavors all across our, our region, our country, our na- across the world? That's why here we set aside 20% of our budget is literally just, hey, how can we use that for missions? How can we put that before our people and say, we're not here just about to build our kingdom and make this an awesome place for us, but how can we see it used in our community, in our nation, and across the globe to support missionaries? Whatever God would call us and lead us to, we want to be able to set aside money, resources, 
Yes, we're going to continue to pray. We're going to do an awesome job praying routinely for lost people, but we're going to put resources behind where our mouth is. We constantly want to put before ourselves that we're not just about what God's doing here and building our kingdom. We want to invest in what God's doing other places. Lastly, uh, we're going to jump down to Acts 13, but lastly, the last thing I have for you is this, that we want to multiply out of a devotion to God and a dependence on the Spirit. We want to multiply out of a devotion to God and a dependence on the Spirit. See, chapter 12 talks a lot about persecution. There's people getting their heads chopped off. Peter's thrown in jail. And literally, you would think that they're doing everything they can to stop this mission of God. It jumps back to Jerusalem and all this persecution's happening. The cool, the cool verse at the end of 12 says, in 24 it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Despite all that, despite all that persecution, God's kingdom is still advancing, it's still increasing, it's unstoppable. And then here we jump in chapter 13 and we flash from Jerusalem back to Antioch and we see, and Rick, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to steal a couple of verses from you, but we see where the power for the multiplication that God has at Antioch. See, it was a diverse group of believers. Let's read it together. 13, 1 through 3. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. See, this is a diverse group of believers from all different ethnicities, backgrounds, skin colors, economic standings, social status. They were gathering together. They were worshiping together. It was out of their devotion to God. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to them. We don't know how he speaks to them, but he clearly tells them, hey, I want you to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I'm going to call them to. And then they fasted and prayed some more, and then they launched them out. This was the most influential church in world missions, in my opinion. The guy that they were trying, that was formerly trying to stomp out the church, and the persecution he incited ended up planting the church here at Antioch. He's the guy they sent out not once, not twice, but three times out of the city of Antioch to go on missions all over the world. But don't miss it. It's not about what they could do for God, but it came from their devotion to God and their dependence on the Spirit. See, I believe Paul did as much as he did, and this is just Matt's opinion here. He did as much as he did because Antioch spent much time fasting and praying for, the king, for him. We can do more for the kingdom on our knees than we can by planning a million different strategies of how to reach people. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use our minds and steward our resources to strategize how best can we engage people with the gospel. But we got to remember that God can do more in five minutes than we can do in 50 years planning and strategizing. And see, we don't, we don't want to see what man can do. You know, we want to see what God can do. Like we want to, we want others to look on and be like, the only explanation for that is God, right? Too many of us live thinking that the limit of what we'll see happen for the kingdom is what we can do for God. People are perishing. People are spending eternity in hell. I think the stakes are high. 
I think Antioch knew that. I think that's why they, they postured themselves out of desperation. They're like, God, you do a work. You lead us. You direct us because the stakes are high. We should be pleading with God that he would pour out his spirit. We should be pleading to see more people proclaiming the gospel. We should be pleading that more people would respond to the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Pleading on our knees to see more everyday people sent out on mission, scattered for the glory of God. When we were gathering around and we were talking about and praying and envisioning what God would do here before we planted the church, you know, we... We jotted some words on paper and, you know, we, we wanted them to be more than just words on paper, right? You pray, you pray, you're like, I don't want this to just be words on a piece of paper or words on a website that characterize the core values of things that we hold to at our church. But we really pray that this would grab hold of the people of our church and that we would, like, see them be more than just words. We, th- we, we, we say things like mission mandate. It doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop here on Sunday morning because every believer is commanded the partner in the Great Commission, empowered by the Holy Spirit for everyday mission. Sound familiar? We said things like fervent prayer, cry aloud, because we prioritize corporate and individual prayer because out of a desperation, we want to see God advance his kingdom, not us. We want to see God do a work. And then we say things like strategic multiplication, God's game plan, literally We want to see God advance his kingdom and we want to help and partner with that as we make disciples and we empower leaders to go plant churches wherever God calls. See, we're always going to be okay with the uncomfortable feeling that our church is like a revolving door. Whatever circumstances bring people in or take people away, we trust that God is taking people and sending people away, but we want to equip them, empower them, send them out for the sake of the gospel, it's bigger than just what's happening here. We'll always be okay with like having gaps or things to fill or having the detention of like we don't have enough people because we realize if people are coming and going, the gospel is getting spread somehow, somewhere. God is taking people all different places and that we're okay with. See, uh, I won't belabor it too much longer, but my big question for you guys is this. Where is, where's God sending you? Where is God sending you? Maybe it's right where you are. See, God's sovereign over your circumstances. He goes with you. Will you depend on him? Will you trust him? Will you go if he says go? Will you stay if he says stay? Will you look to see how God wants to use the everyday things of your life? Maybe God wants you to trust him. Maybe God wants you to take a risk and engage someone else with the gospel. Maybe it means inviting them to Easter. That's coming up. Be a part of what God's doing here. Maybe God wants to send you out and say, hey, how can I um, share the gospel or take you somewhere far away? Maybe. Maybe God just wants you to open up your life and invite someone in for a discipleship-style relationship. Make room in your life. Or maybe, maybe your life looks a lot like Antioch. And there's, there's a lot of gods. And God wants to be the one Lord of your life. So you can chase after all of the different things of this life and never going to satisfy like the Lord Jesus can. See, so we're going to, you know, whatever action, whatever step you want to take, we want to invite you, we're gonna, we want to pray with you, we want to 
stick around. Like there's going to be people that we hang around for a little while after. We're not just rushing to get out of here. But if you want to have questions or you want to dialogue, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? We're going to have people up here. We're going to have people that are going to be hanging out. Find someone. Ask them. Find one of the elders. Let's talk. Let's pray. God, uh, God, you, you rescue and save. God, you, your, your work is unstoppable, God, and we have the privilege just to join you in what you're doing, God. But we can't manufacture the results, God. We can't change hearts. We can't turn hearts of stone to flesh. We can't manufacture resurrection power, God. That's you. God, you, you cause the blind to see, cause the deaf to hear. God, you do that. God, would you, God, would you lead us, God? God, would you guide and direct our lives? Would you, would we listen to you, God? Would we be on our knees asking you to direct us, lead us? God, in our homes, in our, as our church, God, where would you have us go? Where would you have us be? How would you have us serve and be a light in the community, God? How can we engage those around us with the gospel, God? How can we be comfortable with the uncomfortable? God, you, you use everyday people to do what you do, God. God, let's just, God, I pray that you would use us, everyday, normal people, for your kingdom, God. And we pray. Amen. This has been the weekly podcast from Spotswood at Lady Smith in Caroline County, Virginia, USA. These podcasts are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. You can also find the video version of the podcast on our YouTube channel. Just go to spotswoodls.org and click the YouTube link. Thanks for listening, and God bless you.